You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Deborah Voigt, Marcello Giordani, and Sir Andrew Davis are backstage at Lyric. Well, it's probably one of the greatest entrances <laughs> for a soprano. I mean, you walk in, shoot off a gun, and then all the men look at you ad- adoringly <laughs> and, and say, hello, Minnie, as though you are the best thing that's ever landed in front of them. Uh, Dick Johnson is a very complex uh, character and growing uh, every single moment. Um, you discover, discover his personality um, every, every act. The story is very touching, actually, and it's full of the, the kind of raw human emotions that the Puccini is so good at. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. You're about to hear an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for an opera Lyric is presenting this season for the first time in two decades, Puccini's The Girl of the Golden West. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series discussion devoted to The Girl of the Golden West. I'm the moderator for this session, and my guests make up a spectacular trio of panelists. The two singers are American soprano Deborah Voigt, our mini, and Italian tenor Marcello Giordani, who portrays the bandit Ramirez, a.k.a. Dick Johnson. These two distinguished artists recently triumphed in this work at the Metropolitan Opera. They're joined for the Discovery Series by a great admirer of The Girl of the Golden West, Lyric Opera Music Director Sir Andrew Davis, who'll be on the podium for our production. I know you'll enjoy the lively and thoughtful discussion between Sir Andrew, Ms. Voigt, and Mr. Giordani on the subject of Puccini's wonderful Girl of the Golden West. Good evening. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera Chicago. Thank you for coming out on this dreadful night of weather. And I know that you'll be glad that you made the trip because this is going to be a sensational group. Um, I really am delighted to welcome all of you to the Discovery Series session devoted to Puccini's La Fanciulla del West, The Girl of the Golden West. We have three spectacularly distinguished guests, our leading lady, leading man, and conductor of Lyric's first Fanchula in two decades, were thrilled that they could take time out from their very busy rehearsal schedule to be with us tonight. Fanchula is Deborah Voigt's eighth opera at Lyric. She's triumphed here most recently as Tosca, Isolde, and Strauss's Empress and Zalome. She's a great favorite at the Met, where in April she'll sing her first Brunhilde in the new production of Die Valkyrie. She starred at the Met as Minnie in Fanchula earlier this month, including the performance transmitted in HD. 
She sang her first mini last summer at San Francisco Opera. She's been hailed in innumerable prestigious venues worldwide, from the major houses of Munich, Vienna, London, Berlin, and Barcelona, to London's Barbican Center and the Salzburg Festival. This summer, we'll bring her to the Glimmerglass Festival as artist-in-residence and for a significant departure from the Wagner, Verdi, and Strauss, for which she's so celebrated. She'll sing the title role of Irving Berlin's Annie Get Your Gun. <laughs> Italian tenor Marcello Giordani co-starred in this season's Met Fanchula opposite Deborah Voigt. That production marked his role debut. He debuted at Lyric as Donizetti's Edgardo and appeared here most recently as Puccini's Cavradossi. He, too, is a favorite Met artist, having starred there in more than 20 operas, including the Met premieres of Bellini's Il Pirata and Berlioz's Benvenuto Cellini, including new productions of those two operas, plus new productions of Madame Butterfly and The Damnation of Faust. He's a star of Covent Garden, the Salzburg Festival, the major houses of Zurich, Florence, and Barcelona, among many other theaters. In recent seasons, he's added to his repertoire Les Troyens with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Norma at the Salzburg Festival, and the title role of Puccini's Edgar with the Opera Orchestra of New York. Other Puccini operas our music director, Sir Andrew Davis, has conducted at Lyric are Bohème, Tosca, and Turandot. He conducted the, the Mikado earlier this season, and he'll also be on the podium for Lohengrin. This is a big operatic season for him with Capriccio at the Met, Peter Grimes at Covent Garden, Ariadna of Naxos in Toronto, Thais at the Edinburgh Festival, and Vorjak's Rusalka at Glyndebourne, where Sir Andrew was formerly music director. And there are performances with nine major orchestras worldwide, including those of London, Torino, and Montreal. Sir Andrew is former music director of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, where he returned last month to lead performances of his own new orchestration of Handel's Messiah. I want to recommend Sir Andrew's latest recording to you, a rarity by Elgar, the crown of India, on the Chandos label, where he's an exclusive artist. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series, Deborah Voigt, Marcello Giordani, and Sir Andrew Davis. It has been 20 years, so we really need to go over the story just a bit. And I hope I get it right. In Gold Rush, California, the Polka Saloon is run by Minnie, whom all the miners adore. She, in turn, behaves toward them like an affectionate sister. The local sheriff, Jack Rance, wants to marry her, but she takes a shine to a dashing stranger who identifies himself as Dick Johnson. He, in turn, is captivated by her. Johnson comes to visit her at her cabin, but he hides when Jack Rance appears, letting her know that Johnson is actually the notorious bandit Ramirez. After Rance leaves, Minnie vents her rage at Johnson and sends him away. He soon returns, having been shot. Minnie hides him, but he's discovered in the cabin by Rance. Minnie gambles for his life, cleverly cheating in order to beat Rance at poker. Johnson is eventually apprehended, however. He's about to be hanged when Minnie rushes to his aid. Addressing each miner in turn, she makes it clear they owe her the bandit's life. He is freed, and he joins Minnie as they leave California to start a new life. Is that all right? Very concise. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Love to hear that. So, Andrew, it, it has been a full two decades since we, just, since we last had Fanchula here, and we've only done it uh, twice before this year. 
I think Turandot actually demands even more of an opera company technically than Fanchula, but I'm pretty sure even Turandot gets produced more frequently these days than Fanchula. So what is it about Fanchula that makes it less frequently encountered than all the more familiar Puccini operas? Well, well, one reason, I suppose, is that um, the generally accepted view is that there's only one aria, (laughs) which, which is his aria, um, in the third act, which is absolutely marvellous. But actually, there is a fantastic... She doesn't get one. She has all sorts of good things, but she doesn't really get an aria in the sense of, an, you know, a Tosca aria or something. But there's actually a very beautiful, what I call an aria, for, for Rance in, in the first act, which is, I think, one of the most touching things in the piece. But So that's one reason. Um, it's a sort of whimsical story, you might say, in a way. I mean, it's... Um, it's, it's Puccini it's this sort of fascination with the Wild West without really knowing much about it you know it's uh, um, well I mean you know we know that Puccini's idea of American geography wasn't very accurate from uh, Manon Lescaut when uh, <laughs> uh, the last act is set in a desert in Louisiana so <laughs> so but um I don't know, the, the, story, the story is very touching, actually, and it's full of the, the kind of raw human emotions that, that Puccini is so good at. But there's, there's something, uh, you know, the fact that there's gold, the miners in the California gold rush and, and you know, Minnie is the, keeps the bar and, and, and Johnson is not really, you know, he's really a, a Mexican bandit and it's all kind of, kind of weird and slightly silly in a way but as usual with Puccini the, the, what he does with the, the, the characters and you know the sheriff uh, Rance is, is in a way uh, you know you think that an extremely unsympathetic character but actually you end up at least I always end up actually liking him and respecting him um, uh, and the, the fact of the matter is at the end of the second act when there's this poker game when um, for the for the life of Johnson, and she cheats, and he knows that she cheats. No, I, I think I think he knows Excuse perfectly me? well that she's cheated. Oh, he yes. knows that she cheated. Oh, we'll, we'll oh, get I to that. I think so. I think so. I don't. Okay. Think, I think he's too. Anyway, um, you know. So he says, "Buona notte," and he thinks. Anyway, I don't know what. Do you think that? Do you think, or do you think she's fooled him? Oh, I think she fools him. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, whatever. <laughs> anyway, the, the, I mean, the characters, again, are so strongly defined by the music and the, the emotions are so, you know, um, raw at times that, uh, that it is one of the great Puccini operas. But uh, I think the subject matter is, is maybe sort of less universal than, than, than the others and that's why people haven't quite taken to it but orchestrally it's one of the most fascinating of all the Puccini scores and now I'll shut up so they <laughs> um, this opera is ca- called in Italian The Girl of the West literally but the play it's based on is The Girl of the Golden West by David Belasco so Debbie and Marcello I'm sure you both have your own vision of what the Old West was like and I'm just very curious as to where your idea of the Old West comes from from books, from movies, from TV, I mean, maybe from studying about the period at some point in your lives. So when you think of the Old West, what image f- that it comes to your mind? I mean, from your 
past uh, awareness of it? Well, pretty much Clint Eastwood movies, and that's, that's sort of <laughs> that sort of anyone in particular for a few no, dollars no, more or whatever no, it's I called. Couldn't, I couldn't. Uh, I, 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 it's not a genre that I'm a big fan of, actually. <laughs> uh, so I don't really come with any preconceived ideas about what the old West should or shouldn't look like or be. Marcello, were you? Well, I, for me, it's the same thing. I mean, when I was a teenager, I grew up in, in, in Sicily watching these movies, John Wayne and, and, and Clint Eastwood, all the Sergio Leone movies, and uh, maybe it's not political correct to say, but it's a spaghetti western. Well, I'm going to say this is Puccini's spaghetti western. <laughs> no, because well, I, I, Debbie knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I referred uh, to this piece when I was hosting one of the Met HD broadcasts as a sp- Italian spaghetti western, and I got a horrible hate letter yeah. from someone who said I had offended the entire Italian population. But that's not true. That's not true because we, we as Italian, we call this kind of movie spaghetti western because it's directed from the Italian director, and also Franco Nero was uh, an Italian. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I grew up with this idea, and uh, uh, when you're a teenager, you, you want to imitate them. So I was playing be a cowboy with a gun and, and a hat, and then and the wooden, wooden, wooden horse. And then, of course, when I got the, the offer for Fanchula del West, I got so excited and uh, went to restudy and watching again the movie with great joy. The, the big question is, did all of those cowboys that you saw on TV in Sicily speak Italian, or were they all dubbed in Italian, or did they speak yeah, English? For, yeah, you know, and then it's very interesting, because I, I saw it with uh, dotted dubbed it in Italian and then what I watch in original languages and Clint Eastwood sounds so sexy I can tell you <laughs> <laughs> um, e- even in the best possible production of this piece there are some aspects of the story that are I think a bit difficult to accept and yet there are certain things that happen in the early scenes of the opera that if they're handled properly and they catch the audience's attention they can help the audience to sort of buy into the story. And what occurs to me to ask you about is the minors. Do we get a sense in those scenes of how, of what their lives are like, what they're actually doing and how hard they work? Does that come through in any way in the piece? Well, many talks about that, you know, about what they give up. And for every one of them that's at the camp, there's a family and a wife and a baby at home waiting for them. And um, so, yeah, I think we, we have a sense of, of what they have given up in order to, to be there. Does that occur to you also, Marcello? Yeah, I, I'm, of course, what, what they say, if you really listen carefully what the miner said, it's very moving. And somebody cries because he wants to go back to, to the mama, and somebody lives so that the children and just for a little little coin of gold, and they don't know if they can get it. And I find the opera very contemporary, very very actual in the situation because with the immigrants, we are Italians. We 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 lived with uh, immigrations from uh, south to north, south Italy to north Italy, and even from Italy Italy to uh, different countries. And uh, one of them, I have. A, immigrants from my family too and I really know how, how much they suffer living their, their dear things at home yeah it's, it's, it's sure it's, I mean I guess it's, that's, uh, it, it is very Italian in that sense particularly the sort of 
they're all talking about their mothers. You know, but about the immigration, yeah. I think, is, <laughs> it's... it's but, uh, but in a sense, that's, that's completely international. It's like, you know, people who are, have, have they gone to war, have they gone to be miners or whatever, but they're, 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 you know, their families are sort of thousands of miles away. Yeah. So one of the most touching scenes is when, you know, uh, for Larkins, who, who is just thoroughly miserable, and he wants to go home, which actually is to Cornwall, but it sounds to me as though it's Messina. But there's something else. For me, the most the most <laughs> moving the most moving things is the um, when the postman comes. No, not the postman. The, the what, what do you call? Oh, oh yes, the balladeer, yes, absolutely. The balladeer, Jake Wallace. Jake Wallace. Who, yeah, that's yeah. I think the most moving things. In it's a very beautiful thing because it's early in the opera and, and he appears in this production, sort of uh, in in the distance, and and he's singing uh, about you know. If he doesn't, if he doesn't return home, how much weeping will be? The and, then will, uh, and then will, this wonderful line: "Will will my dog remember me?" You know, it's it's. Very, I know, I know. It's it's. Very for those of us who have dogs, it's very it rings true. You know. um, right, Debbie? That's right. Ulysses and Argos. The other element that it seems to me could bring the audience really quite deeply into the piece fairly early on is Minnie's importance in those miners' lives. Debbie, how is that actually shown on stage? How do we get that sense that how, how she truly matters to every one of those men? Well, it's probably one of the greatest entrances <laughs> for a soprano. I mean, you walk in, shoot off a gun, and then all the men look at you ad- adoringly <laughs> and, and say, hello, Minnie, as though you are the best thing that's ever landed in front of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that they feel that way. I think she's a, a breath of fresh air and, and levity, and, and she is teaching some of them to write and to read, and she gives them Bible lessons, and they adore her. Do, and they know they can't have her. Don't you think yeah. she, they, she remembers them, the mother and the sister? Yeah, the, their mother and their sisters. Yeah. So yeah. Don't they, within about a minute of your coming on stage, don't they surround you and start giving you one present they after another? They give me another? gifts, yes. What yes. do you get from them? Uh, I, at first, I'm handed flowers from, that are from the, uh, where this character is from, supposedly. And then I get a blue scarf to match my eyes, mm-hmm. is what he says. And then I get a ribbon, a red ribbon, to match the color of my mouth. And I think that's it, yeah. Now, the two but it's like she's, I mean, she's, she's the object of desire for all of them. But, you know, they know, they know really she, they can't. They can't achieve this, so she's also a mother figure and a sister figure. That's right. Yeah, so they all wrapped up. They have so one, much really. respect for her. Besides, yeah, besides absolutely. Jackie Rand, so they so much that they never touch her, so that they're never thinking about her. Yeah, and she's uh, and, she's, and her. nobody ever challenges her. I yeah. mean, she's she's a figure that that sacred. Clearly, sacred, sacred, yes, right? she's sacred. like a special. You can see why I love this part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The two of you uh, just finished a run at the Met of Fanchula and Debbie. You've also sung it in San Francisco. Now, in performances, when you were actually on stage doing this piece, did you sense that there were aspects of it that really didn't quite work, that were really sort of hokey? I mean, I'm thinking you mentioned hello, Minnie, and that kind of stuff. See, I don't find any of that hokey. Oh. <laughs> I, just, I just don't. I, 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 I love it all. The only thing I had a hard time with is that she has this moment uh, with with Dick where she talks about being nothing. That you know, she she goes to this very dark sort of place. And and when I was studying the part, I thought, where does that come from? Because there's nothing that we know about her background uh, that we're told about her background that would indicate that sort of um, lack of 
confidence that we see very plainly. And I, I finally came to play it anyway, that she sees in Dick Johnson something completely different and in, in, in her estimation perhaps unattainable. And it makes her feel a little bit less, you know, that I couldn't, I'm not quite what I should be in order to get this man. And she talks about only having had $30 worth of education, which actually is probably quite a lot back then. <laughs> <laughs> she says it derogatorily, but really that was probably a pretty good education. Um, yeah, I, I, I found that kind of tricky to, to get around. Where does that come from? Well, I mean, because we see the the vulnerable side of her when she's with right. with him. No other. Because with the miners, she's this authority, you know, a, a kind of object of veneration almost for, for them. And then when she's with him, she starts talking about when she was a little girl. Mm-hmm. I love that scene. And yeah, well, this... you're not singing it, babe. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just trying to. Oh! Accompany, I'm just trying to accompany. No. I know. <laughs> trying to follow me. It's not easy. I know. No, I know. Um, but it's a very touching scene because she talks about her parents, uh, you know, what they did, and her mother cooked, and 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 then she talks about. There's this marvelous moment when she she talks about hiding under the table right. in the hopes that some money will fall down, and there's a little ting on the triangle. Right. Well, I told him to play louder because it's a joke. Um, but then she talks about her parents sort of playing footy under the, the table. It's just so so sweet, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's, it's as though with Johnson, she, she can actually... She, she also opens up in a way she has never, never does with anybody else, that's I suppose. True. And that's because they recognize something in each other. Yeah. I don't know. What I think is so lovely is when she's talking... When you, the, the scene that you just described, being under the table and... Then the music all of a sudden becomes expansive, and she has the, one of the biggest phrases in the role, and the words that she's singing is, they loved each other so much. And so it's a beautiful transition, I think, that Puccini makes there. Marcello, are there any aspects of the piece that you think are just a little sort of awkward? I mean, we mentioned Hello, Mini before. I also think when she addresses him as Mr. Johnson, I always find that a little, you know, Mr. Johnson, and then proceeds in Italian. It's the Mr. always gives me pause somehow. Well, in the score is the Signor Johnson, actually, oh, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. But the, the oh, tradition, yeah? the, I have a Signor Johnson, yeah, and I then do. in English, translation is a Mr. Johnson. But maybe the, the, um, the traditions now say Mr. Mr. Johnson, which sound pretty, pretty cute. Yeah, uh, I suppose. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's always nice that her name is Minnie, except her name's not Minnie, it's Minnie. It's the double N, the Italian double N. It makes something completely different, doesn't it? I I just discovered that there's a 1938 film, I don't know if any of you have seen it, with Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy. It's The Girl of the Golden West, but it isn't Puccini. It's Sigmund Romberg. (laughs) And it's with, I think, uh, Walter Pidgeon is Jack Rance, and and Buddy Ebsen is in it, and it's... (laughs) It's just, it, it's worth going online to track this down. I had no idea. Now, given that Fanchula is still so fresh in both of your minds from doing it in New York, are there any touches from that production that you can actually carry with you and bring into your rapport on the stage in this production? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, we're, yeah. 
We worked it out pretty well the in kiss, New York. The kisses stay the same. <laughs> the kisses always the same. That's another good part. Actually, here, here the kiss is longer than, than New York, right? Is it? The kiss, I, I find a little longer. <laughs> Why is that, Martello? I don't, I don't know. Maybe the bed. It's the staging. The staging. Okay. No, I mean, geographically, we don't change anything. I mean, we, because we just did it. Well, we're getting, I, I just we say are to, getting a little turned around, though. Yeah, I just say to Debbie during the rehearsal that how, how great I am working with, with such a great, great artist that she, uh, she looked at me and I understand what she wants and I think she feels the same way. And this is kind of chemistry, artistic chemistry is so beautiful. Yeah. And I have such a great time in New York and such a great time here. In... We've had a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, this opera is so much more through composed than what we're used to in hearing the Puccini operas that were written up to this point. So we don't have, as, as, as Andrew was saying before, there is no Visidar, there is no Eluceva le Stelle, there is no Unbeldi. We have Johnson's Calamicreda, the most famous music in the opera. But, uh, and he also has a short aria in Act Two. And then you Is have, it the most difficult, actually? Yes, than the one in Act Two. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Hard. Um, that's hard. But, but Andrew, it, it sounds like you don't consider what Debbie sings in La Juna Soledad an aria per se. Because it's not an aria chiusa. Well, in a way, none of the arias, well, yours in the third act is. Yeah. is um, Probably the closest to a traditional Puccini aria, but but there always this is this sense of um, conversation. That, you know that one oughtn't to stop for applause at the end. That's one thing. Um, you know, so in that sense, it is more through composed, um, and I think that's one of the things that's beautiful about it. Actually, there's a there's a kind of flow to the piece, and and I always well, yeah, I know. I think this is true. Uh, <laughs> uh, the acts all seem very short to me. Just w- you know, conducting them. Uh, well, they are relatively you know, compared to Lohengrin. My goodness, um, but, and and they get progressively shorter, which I always think is a good idea actually, yes. <laughs> in any opera. Well, so the big question, I suppose, Debbie and Marcello, is: Are those the extended solo passages that you do have in this piece? Are they enough? to satisfy whatever craving you might have in this piece for a moment. Yes. I, I'm sort of actually relieved that there isn't a Visi d'Arte <laughs> in this piece because if that Tosca, for example, I love to sing, but that aria gives me gray hair. And uh, so I'm sort of enjoying that the, the success of the evening is based on the entire evening right. and not... That you nail every note in Tosca and have one tr- one slip with the B flat in the end of Isidarte, and well, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, she's no Tosca. <laughs> yeah, it is like strange. Strange enough, it's you done. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange. It's a different kind of Puccini um, written music because it's you know everybody loves Rodolfo and and uh, Cavaradossi. Have, they have a manifesto arias and and. Um, they're monochromatic, and, and the people, they love them or hate him just uh, um, the first moment. Uh, Dick Johnson is a very complex uh, character and growing uh, every single moment. And you discover, discover his personality um, every, every act. Uh, that's right. Now, very I, I hadn't thought about good. that, but you, if you compare it to Tosca, all three of the main protagonists in Tosca are pretty 
standard. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're not, there's not a lot of subtlety in them in a way. Yeah. You know, you know Scarpi is the lascivious villain. Uh, you know, Cavaradossi is the the hero, and 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 she's the diva. Um, the, these characters in in Fanchula are much more much have much more, more shades of yeah. nuanced personalities. I think. Be- before we get away from this idea of arias or no arias, um, Andrew, what effect does the opera being almost aria free? Wh- what effect does that have on the way the action actually unfolds? Well, I mean, I suppose in, in the sense that, you know, with, with the, the standard arias, the action stops and you sing an aria. Um, so, uh, it, in other words, with this, the, the action, whether it's, you know, physical or psychological, just flows through more. Um, and in that sense, I suppose it's... Yes, it is more through-composed, but uh, I think you can make too much of this, you know, uh, Puccini was uh, the th- extraordinary thing is he had such a th- sense of theatre. You know, timing is everything with him, and you know, there's, it's you know, he, like the the intimate scenes between these two. I don't know; they just seem to last the perfect length. You know, there's, there's just there's never any question of thinking, "Oh God, is this you know, is this this is going on a bit?" You never feel that in this piece, and I, I don't. Well, you know, never feel that. In, any of the mature Puccini pieces, in my opinion. I mean, that's that's one of the things he's so great at, and then that's why you know you compare you can compare him to someone like Wagner, which is I mean the, the difference is enormous, but the sense of of timing, you know, with Wagner, it, the paragraphs are <laughs> three times as long, but but the, it's this sense of proportion that that makes him a a great theatrical composer and, and also seizing the, the really dramatic moments and making something so striking of them. I, we talked about Minnie's first entrance. I mean, it's a fantastic moment. The orchestra sort of... Of course, he shoots a gun in the air and there's this, this huge sort of orchestra thing uh, which then comes down and we come into something more intimate and immediately we see the, you know, the special... Hold that this wonderful person has on the on the minors, but it, but it's and it's all conveyed so quickly with him. You know, I mean, it's a brilliant. I, I haven't seen that page of the score to indicate, Debbie. Are, is it is it marked specifically where you're supposed to shoot the gun when you enter? It, or do you just do you, do you actually shoot it yourself? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, in the score, there's one gun shot. Gun shot. Yeah, but two. but I do two, and at the Met, I did three. And wow. <laughs> And so, so uh, it's a, there's a pretty obvious place where it should happen. We are actually celebrating uh, every company that is doing Fanchula this season is celebrating the 100th anniversary of the premiere. It was premiered at the Metropolitan Opera with um, Pasquale Amato, Enrico Caruso, and Emmy Destin in 1910. And what was interesting is that the, uh, the, the man who was responsible for the play... David Blasco was acting as stage director at a time when stage directors barely existed. But what I think is amazing is to look at 1910 and realize that Schoenberg had already written Erwartung, a piece in your repertoire, Debbie. Debussy had written Peleas. Strauss had written Elektra and Zalame, two more operas that you have sung very often. Mahler Mahler was writing the 19th. Yeah. So 
Did the creation of those and other pieces, Andrew, did they have any effect on the sound world of Fanchula? Oh, of course. So can Absolutely. you describe I mean, he, he was he was I mean he was a magpie. He took a lot of things from other composers. I mean, uh, just if you talk about Debussy, there's a lot of whole tone music in this, much more than I mean. It was fun in other pieces, but it's just it's all the way through in this piece constantly. So that he got from Debussy. Um, sure, well, you know, if Artem, <laughs> not so much. Except that. Um, Right at the beginning of the piece, when Jake Wallace sings his little nostalgic song, there's an offstage harp that is, in the score it says, that has to have paper threaded through the strings so it sounds like a banjo. So why didn't he write for a banjo? Um, um, But, well, one of the only two other pieces that I know that asks for paper to be threaded through the strings of the harp is a hartle. So there you go. But I I think that's a coincidence. but yes, of course. I mean, even even Strauss, you can some of the kind of uh, well, if you th- I mean, Electra, which is 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 the most modern of all of all um, uh, Strauss's scores. I mean, that's you know there are parts of Electra that sound like Evartel, actually, particularly. Um, but in this, Mestra, but 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 I mean, this this the colours in the orchestra in Fanchula are the most exotic and the most... I mean, you hear Debussy, and, uh, there's some stuff at the, at the end of the second act that's, I mean, harmonically and also just in terms of the orchestration are very Debussyan, but somehow they, they're Puccini. You know, that's, that's the thing. I mean, he, you know, he takes all these influences, but they always become his, his distinctive voice. You know? And you can say, well, this, this and this composer was an influence, but he, 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 he was a very smart man. He, you know, he picked up everything he could from what was around. And we, of course, know what was picked up from Fanchula. <laughs> oh, do we? You want to reveal that not-so-well-kept secret to our audience? Well, there's bits of Phantom of the Opera. Psychological Fanchula. Yeah. It'll, yeah. It'll Which, be by the way, if, I'm, if one more person tells me their favorite opera is Phantom of the Opera, I'm going to just... <laughs> 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 but I, 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 I discovered, uh, which I didn't know before, because you know this is the, the Phantom. Phantom is is a, one of the most shameless steals from anything. Yeah. But apparently, the the Puccini estate actually sued him. Right. They, they, they won. They, 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 won they, settled out, they settled out. of course. So we they don't won. Know how they much. won the, the lawsuit. So yeah, yeah. They won. I don't know how much money. I'm they dying, I would love to know how much they made. There's there's also a moment. And, Debbie, I don't know if when you sang this music that it struck you. There's a moment in the last of the four last songs of Strauss where she sings, da, 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 da. And I thought, where have I heard that before? Oh. <laughs> Jesus Christ, superstar. And I thought, it just, I thought he You're did right. it again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> hadn't, hadn't caught that before. Thank you. Um, Puccini Estate right away. They yeah, exactly. money. I want to talk about both of your characters, of course, and I, I just find Minnie the most appealing of all the Puccini heroines. So I wanted to ask you, Debbie, what is your favorite episode in the piece that really brings to the fore the total sort of lovability of this woman and... And how does one project that in the characterization to the audience? Because that, that quality, I don't think you can pin that on every Puccini heroine, but you can absolutely, in spades, you could pin it on Minnie. It's yeah. really part of her. I don't know that there's really one moment that 
that describes that. I think it's the, the collection of the whole evening and, and what we see her go through and the conversations that she has talking about her family and where she came from. And, and uh, yeah, I think it's um, very much, for me, playing the part, I have to stay very much in the moment and think about what it is that she's saying right now. And, and I think that makes her more believable, more present. Um, sometimes if you're, I, I can remember laying in the bed of Tristan and Isolde during the overture and, and starting to think about the last note of the Liebestote and just, you know, you just can't do it that way. You have to <laughs> take one step at a time. And um, We've talked about various qualities of her character already, but what I was thinking was, does she have any faults? That, that make her a three-dimensional human being because she's just so such a thoroughly good person. Yeah, she is. Well, I mean, she she does cheat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, she does, and she does that pretty quickly too. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, like that. She knows what she's going to do. So you know, she's and and she lives in this community, and and so she has her sauciness and and her her faults as well. But you have to look for them a little bit. You know, they're not immediately apparent. Um, Marcello, you're playing a bandit. Are there any qualities of his character that you particularly admire? <laughs> As I said before, he's a very complex uh, character. Character, so it's not really a bandit for it because he's cho- choose to be a bandit. What he's tell the, 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 the um, meaning the second act is that he was um, uh, he was tried to. Um, Make make his father desire to becoming a bandit, but I mean he's is very educated. He's very educated person. He can read. He can uh, talking uh, with nice uh, words. Uh, he can express himself. Something of a poet in him. Do you think? Yes, I think so. The way he loves he loves literature. He loves uh, books and and uh, and is he has a kind of a. Philosophy of of life that uh, you don't, I don't you don't find in them in a bandit in a cowboy. I mean, uh, uh, he said he said to me, he, um, explain why he's a bandit because his father wants to make right. a promise, but and his life is nothing, and meeting meeting Minnie for him is. A, um, a redemption, a, a catharsis, like like he can be a different man, a different human being that you always desire to to be. Uh, can you remind our audience how they actually meet? Do they met a couple weeks before? Yeah, yeah, they, like, uh, yeah. They meet uh, on the road. She's been to, to Monterey, Monterey. and yeah. she's back. on her way back. And and he. They just meet on the road, literally. I believe they do, if I recall correctly from the yeah, from yeah, the but play. But remember, remember that he he came he came in the saloon in La Polca just not to meet her. No. He came just to take, take take the, the gold, and, and the moment that he sees her and then, and see the how strong this woman he is to defend the, the the gold and the miner miners, he really becoming a different person. So is there a moment that you sense when he's actually changed his mind that he's not going to commit this crime after all? Is there, do you sense this sort of turning point? I'm talking yes. About, yeah, it's, I think in, in, in the moment that um, uh, he sees her and s- talks to her, 
I think it's just already in the first act that yeah. he wants to steal the, the, the gold, but then what she said to him is touches touches his heart, and if he, he fell in love, fell in love immediately because he's not a bad guy. He's a guy that he has to to do what his father so told him to do it. And we have the sense in this scene when they're talking about when they when they met before that you get they both have the understanding that you know this meeting whenever however whenever it was before was something that was a life-changing thing for both of them yeah. don't you feel that i mean yeah i mean the the, the things that he touches uh jordani feeling and i think he touches johnson feelings is when she said o 30 dollari d'educazione meritavo di più i mean i wish i could have uh, been more educated what would i have been if i'd had more yeah and 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 he he feels that he want to be like her. So that's, that's what really touches, touches his heart. Is he, he seems in, 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 in some way unique it among unique. the characters that you play. And I was wondering if you sense any similarities in him between other people that you play on the stage. Or is he really sort of unto himself as, some, as a very special characterization? Mm, I don't know. Maybe Lansky, but I'm not sure about that. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's very unique character, mm-hmm. as you said. Mm-hmm. As, as I said before, Rodolfo, Kalaf, or uh, Cavarados, they're singing. They're, they're straightforward. Lo- straightforward. Mm-hmm. And Johnson is very compli- complicated character. You have, you have to play uh, very carefully and, and try to... Because I don't know if the audience already immediately love, love him. I have no idea if the first act, the first impression from the audience is, oh, I, I love Dick Johnson immediately. He has to a, a telling the audience um, the way that he, he I think why changes the, life. Yeah, I, why, why the audience would love Dick Johnson is because of the... But you think they love the, him immediately? The, the, the real quality of what he feels for, for Minnie, I think. So you think I mean, they love him immediately from the well, first moment? Well, I think as soon as they... That, as soon as that scene happens, the, the intimacy of that scene when they're talking about when they first met, and then there's the kind of there's a sort of shyness between them. Don't you think? You also, know? because it's a kind of a Robin Hood, right? Yeah, because a there's, of... a, there's an innocence about it that's yeah. so beautiful, yeah. I think. And then when she discovers that actually this notorious local whore was supposedly his mistress, Nina Miguel Torreño. Yeah, and and and, <laughs> and and then she she's devastated by that. Brokenhearted, and yet, and yet, and that's why he has a complicated. He has to ex- try to explain to Minnie right. uh, what the struggle is life. What uh, and, and yet, there's and something so strong about the the, the the feelings that she has for him that she forgive. Well, him. and of course, it's the fact that he's been shot and she has to sort of save him. <laughs> that, oh, yeah, you know, maybe we forget all about this other woman. But but the, I mean, that's what what I think the the, the intensity and and the, in a way the the kind of. Uh, there is a sort of almost naive purity about the feelings that these two have for each other. And, and that's, in a way, one of the, the things I very, find very touching about the whole piece. When, you, when I say there's a sort of naivety about the piece, I don't mean that in any derogatory sense, quite the opposite. I think that, you know, she, she's a naive... They're, they're complicated characters, but there's something very simple about their, their real love for each other that transcends everything, I think. Uh, I know, it's... We haven't talked that much about Jack Rance, so Debbie, is he really in love with Minnie or not? What do you get from him in those scenes? Uh, I think he's in love with what's unattainable. Ah. Uh, I don't know that he 
I mean, I'm sure he has affection for her, and she is the only chick around for some some space. But I I think it's that he can't have her that that he really doesn't that's he what have he's, a, does he have a wife back home? He does. Oh yeah. yeah. She, she, so said, how can he, she yeah. said it to him right away. Yeah. So he would just he would be a bigamist. Yeah, he, he would he marry. Said, he says I'll marry you, and you, she says, "What about what your about wife? Your, what will your wife think about yeah. that?" <laughs> and it's funny because on, I give you a thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. Him, right? Yeah. And actually, there's when on the on the word for wife, there's a very sexy chord in the orchestra. So <laughs> it's like, but that's the kind of chord that's reserved for the mistress, not the wife. But <laughs> so <laughs> interesting, it's, interesting. It's very funny. It's it's. We have to listen for that. Can you describe it? Nice, very I mean, interesting, actually. Yeah. Yes, it's a dominant minor ninth. Oh, dear. <laughs> Is it? No. <laughs> you had me. But it's rather a Debussyan chord. So, it's, a very, it's a sort of rather French-sounding chord for that particular moment. Remind us what, what, he's, what Rance is singing when that chord happens. No, when he, he says... Uh, I'll, you know, I'll marry you. And she says, what about your, what wife? About your wife? Okay, so and it's the, what about the, your the, wife? The, 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 he doesn't respond, yeah, I think. He doesn't, doesn't, no, no. he doesn't give a... Uh, no. No, so. but I think you're right. And, uh, the, and of course, the, the dramatic thing that he co- contributes to the opera is, is his jealousy. Yeah, but don't you think I mean, is it just an infatuation, just a sexual... Um, moment that he wants her, just a sexual... Uh, yeah, probably. Process, you know. But it's the fact that you know you show up and she immediately that falls really head over heels <laughs> is, is makes him crazy, and that's why that you know the his his desire to get this guy you know when they when they find out that Johnson and, and Ramirez are the, one and the same, then it's like a great ha ha moment for Jack Rance in a way, uh, you know he can he can get the bandit and 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 put one. Well, Over you, in a way. Actually, his real name was Italian, Bartolini. Really? His father was Bartolini family. Oh. I have to go back and read this libretto it's, it's, again. I, I have to I, find I, it. Um, the, the, you can actually go online. You can't necessarily find the play, but you can find Belasco actually made a novel out of the play. Uh, the, in 1911, I just found that. I, I Googled, if you Google David Belasco, the girl, uh, the girl of the Golden West, you will find that. Um, so, Debbie, when he tells you in Act Two, when he tells you that Johnson is Ramirez, does he tell you in a smug way and self-satisfied, or does he tell you in a nasty way? How does he... Certain amount of self-satisfaction, mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah. Now, I want to... Uh, I have three little categories, and I want to see how you all respond... I want your nomination for the most lusciously beautiful moment of the score. If you had your Desert Island Fanchula moment in terms of sheer beauty, what do you think you would take? And it doesn't have to come, doesn't have to come from, from your role, Marcello, or yours, Debbie. It can be from anything. Uh, wow, that's, that's tough. That's, that would be really hard to pull. One. Well, it has... At the end of the first act is... That's pretty wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's fabulous. So simple. Yeah. Yes. And there's this very odd thing that's very hard to get right, and we fiddle around mm-hmm. with it a bit today, where um, Johnson has this beautiful line, uh, which is very in a very Debussyan kind of accompaniment, and in the wings, the tenors of the chorus are sort of singing along. And, and it's very difficult to get it right because... 
in a way, you don't want to say, oh, the tenors are singing in the wings. <laughs> if, you, if, if, if you say, oh, the tenors are singing in the wings, it's, it's too loud. Right, yeah. But on the other hand, you need to be aware of something. So, you know, we were fiddling around with the sort of, we were amplifying it a bit and, you know, it, but that is a really magical moment, uh, just in terms of the sort of luminosity of the yeah. texture. And because, and then he, you know, he says, um, what's it there? viso d'angelo. Yeah. You, you have a, an angel's face. And that's why he, he feels and, he feels and then that he, he leaves. can change his life. She's, yeah. She's yeah. His, his angel. He's an, he, an she's angel. the angel. And then he leaves and she says, What did he say? What did he say? Uh, the Very face sick. of an angel. And then it finishes in uh, the innuendo. It's beautiful. Yeah, oh, it's, it's an exquisite moment. I think that for me is perhaps the most ravishing moment of the and, piece. And she, it completely sort of it makes her this radiant figure at the end of that first act, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a beautiful it's a great moment. It's great fun Be- to Because play. it's, you know, it's pure, and they've just had this wonderful love scene, and nothing has <laughs> come to complicate it, you know. Mm. So the, the, I think this is belonging to what Puccini wants, because if we, if we listen, the very colloquial um, libretto is very conversational, giving with uh, this symphonic orchestrations, yeah. it's like mm-hmm. more... Yeah. more it's that the genius of, of this this piece. Yeah, the conversational, is... very simple words, very very. Um, yeah. Accompanied with the beautiful symphonic moments. Yeah. I think it's the most. But uh, this moment of the face, you know, the visa d'Angelo is is somehow uh, we're out of the, you know, this funny little bar in the yeah. up in the in the California mountains, and we're in some magical. Very poetic. Perfect, you know. Is that also for the, imagination? Is that also for the three of you the most affecting moment emotionally in the piece? I mean, just thinking in terms of the score, the, the way the music affects you emotionally as you perform it, or is there something else that sort of grabs you and tugs the heartstrings even more than that? Well, I think when when she realizes not so much that he's bandit, but that he's taken her kiss. And uh, I think that's her bottom, as it were. She just is so devastated and so heartbroken. And she does it so beautiful that it really moves me so much. <laughs> Do we assume it's her first kiss? Yeah, well, she said, well, I forgive you, be a bandit, but I can forgive you. That's between for the, for the, you, 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 you and take, God, but, you know, but you to take, take first my first kiss, kiss that was mine. And, and, uh, yeah. Well, we... we uh, you know, at face value, are assuming that this is her first kiss. But you know, what does she really mean by that? You know, does it mean literally her first kiss, or does it mean something more significant to her? And we don't really know. And you know, it's part of the fun of creating these characters is to come up with your own sort of backstory. You know, where, why? And I haven't. Not that I've figured this out. I mean, I. But you know why is she there to begin with? You know this this woman out in the middle of nowhere with all these men. What what drove her there? What you know? What's what's she running from to that to that place? And you haven't concluded anything yet about that. You're just no, you're I haven't. I haven't. No, I just it's a part of the fun of of taking on these these new roles and having a chance to sing them over and over again is to. To think, well, you know, we were discussing this earlier, and uh, Francesca Zambello and I were talking about it, and she said, well, you know, Debbie, you know, you're assuming this is her first kiss, but, you know, why is she there to begin with? And and she said, you know, you, you're assuming, she said, is she 
a virgin. Is she really not been? I said, well, of course she is. She's never given her fr- Really? She says, really, she is. And it, it made me start thinking, well, maybe she's escaping from something from, from she's coming from San Francisco. Yeah, who knows? And then Fres- Francesca like, being uh, like Francesca a foreign, goes. Legion, you know, right. even the miners, we don't know if they are, if they are honest people. Right, you know, maybe right. they came, you know, that they are there because they, if they're coming back, that they rest in them. So, so Francesca went in this whole sideline about, uh, well, you know, maybe, maybe Minnie had a baby. And oh, <laughs> intake of air, and I know, I know, it's far, far fetched. And then, and then she went even further and says that Wokeless Papoose is really Minnie's baby. <laughs> That'll be the next uh, avant-garde production. And, and you know, new ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm not will... running with that one, by the way. That is not what's going on in my head while I'm up there. But somebody will write a doctoral thesis on that. Yeah, exactly. Premise. We we certainly need to talk about what it takes to perform these two very uh, formidable roles. I mean, I remember a great mini, the late Dorothy Kirsten, talking about Act Two of Fanchula as being a vocal feat, and she said, for once, Puccini must have been mad at the soprano. So, Debbie, what have you learned about pacing this opera from uh, the two productions that you've done prior to Lyric's production? Well, most of the roles that I sing... Uh, require an enormous amount of pacing, um, so it's not it's not really a new area for me. Um, and I, you know, you keep hearing when you take on the role of Minnie. Oh, it's a she's a voice wrecker, and you know she's. But I think that I've had a slight advantage in that I've come sort of from the other, the more dramatic aspect of things in having sung Isolde and some of the other repertoire that I sing so that Minnie doesn't feel quite as dramatic as she would if I were a Cho-Cho-san trying to sing Minnie, for example. Um, I think I have a, a, a slight edge in that, in that way with, with the character. Now, Marcello, like Debbie, you took quite a while before adding this opera to your repertoire. I mean, with Johnson, it seems to me that Puccini is needing a tenor with more weight in the sound than in the previous operas. So what are the sections for you in the role where it's clear that that kind of voice, a broader and stronger voice than, say, a Rodolfo, is what really, what the role is requiring. Yeah, because Rodolfo is more lyric, and Rodolfo is, is a different, different tessitura, uh, and also um, uh, Dick Johnson, uh, he needs more maturity, in not only vocally, also mentally. It's like, like when you want to sing Hoffman or Werther, you need to really... Uh, digest and feeling inside your your body, um, and the moment that I got an offer from the Met, which was a couple of years before, uh, I got very scared because I mean I was flattered that they offered me for the centennial, and then but then I I saw the score the the, the orchestra score and I listened the orchestration I said oh my God how my voice can carry, um, then you know I was. Work in progress all the time, singing, singing uh, every single day, and try to find the, the right spot. And I think my voice is uh, is a kind of voice that he, he can cut through yeah. the orchestra, even if it's a very thick orchestrations. Um, it's not really for dramatic tenor for me, for my taste. It's just for more 
lyrico spinto with the, with the possibility that you can have high notes singing be, be natural right yeah. away immediately B flats and sits in that tessitura yeah I agree and, and I, don't, I don't think it's a real dramatic tenor part in that sense I mean yeah. you don't, it's not like I mean even mm, Gigli sang it in, 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 yeah. his, in his time and, and I, I didn't consider I don't consider Benemino Gigli a dramatic tenor um there, there are quite a lot of balance issues in this piece, actually. But although, actually, the first act is not so dramatic; it's so lyric, no. No. so li- really. Yeah. The yes. on, the most maybe the most dramatic moment is also on Saint Maisy. Yeah. But the, the second act aria. The second act, but it sits so so beautifully high and, and in the passage way that it really you can cut if you have a voice, of course. But you can, it, you can and cut it's it interesting because you have to mind you. I, I've said this very often about. <clears throat> Puccini and his orchestration because <clears throat> one of the problems of, of, of everyone thinks of Puccini and thinks of melodies and beautiful vocal, vocal writing but in fact he was a fantastic orchestrator in real I mean I mean voice. you think of the f- the little flower duet from from Butterfly with Butterfly and Suzuki when they're Strewing the it's the most exquisitely orchestrated. The woodwind writing is so delicate and imaginative, and uh, and uh, so. But one of the problems with orchestras playing Puccini is that you know, you they see they have a tune to play and they play too loud, and and, and, and you know so much of the time. I mean, there there are more places in this probably than any other Puccini operas that I know, where where you know the. You've got a bunch of minor, three or four minors on stage, and the orchestra's playing fortissimo and uh, you know full orchestra. So uh, there, there are some issues, but on the whole, there's a tremendous delicacy about this. And and as I say, the the, the the influence of Debussy is very strong, and you have to play a lot of it like Debussy, you know, with a very transparent string texture, without you know, without that sort of Brahmsian, mm. um, you know, it needs it needs lumin, lumin, luminosity. Yeah, but he requests you know. also singing in pianissimo. I mean, yeah. the first hat. Second hat is nothing, nothing hard. It's just a conversational dialogue. The only moment is really dramatic for me. It's Orson Semesi, the, yeah. the second hat aria. Yes. Yeah. Um, Debbie, I wanted to go back to your most recent role here, which was Tosca. Can you make any comparisons between these two women? Do they share any qualities in common? Well, when they fall in love, they fall hard. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I think I think they're pretty pretty distinct. Do, yeah. When uh, when Minnie confronts Ranson in Act Two, does the way she treats him relate at all to the way Tosca treats Scarpia, or do they approach their nemeses and? Radically different ways. Yeah, I, th- I really think um, I think there's an undercurrent of attraction between Tosca and Scarpia. At least, I've always felt that way, and and I don't feel that's the case with Minnie and Rance. I I think she tolerates him because she has to, and because he is a person of authority and demands a certain amount of respect. But I think she finds him smarmy, and you know, <laughs> really doesn't want uh, doesn't find anything at all engaging about him. Um, I'm always interested in how singers physicalize the characters they're playing, especially when they are singers who portray characters from wildly different periods of history. And I was thinking with Debbie, I wonder how 
how playing Minnie on the stage and establishing a posture and carriage movement for her uh, is different from what you do as an Isolde or an Ariadna. And with Marcello, I thought, well, does Johnson move the same way as an Edgardo would or a Desgrieux would? So can you address that? Uh, I immediately got a swagger when they put the cowboy boots on me. <laughs> Just like... And, you know, you find yourself with a, a gun on your hip, and, and suddenly, you know, there's a lot of physicality there that you don't find playing Isolde. Um, which is not to say that she doesn't have her own posture and way of, of bearing herself. But, yeah, I definitely am enjoying the, you know, hands on the hip and the foot up on the bar. And, you know, it's, it's, she's fun to play. She's, she's different. The foot on the bar. Where does... Well, not the bar. But the, well, the, yeah, the foot... Rail. Uh huh. How how does Johnson move? How does he carry himself on the stage, especially in relation to some of the other people that you play? Uh, he play, he try to plays like a cowboy. <laughs> Actually, I, I really um, try to to make more more believable as as a cowboy than than uh, a normal normal guy. Uh, he yeah he puts his foot in, in a bear. He's dr- dr- drinking a whiskey. Um, or Coke Zero. Or Coke Zero. I, I ask him. <laughs> then he puts his hands in his in his belt to to be a little cool, you know, and then touch his hat. I mean, I try to. That was a nice little move that you added in. You see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it interesting, Marcella. <laughs> but of course, the every performance is different. Every performance, I like to adding things, even small things, because otherwise it's boring. I mean, to be there. Square everything. Oh, yeah, you, yesterday you did this. I have to do the same thing. Yeah, it's, different rubati every night. Yeah. Every, <laughs> no, 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 that's not, no, 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 that's something else. No, 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 no. <laughs> Debbie, when you come on in Act Two, you have a lot to take care of before Johnson even gets there. Don't you have to run around and sort of ready yourself for his arrival? What sort of routine does she go through in sort of preparing to? to be a hostess in her cabin for him when he pays a call on her? Well, she gets rid of the cowboy boots immediately and uh, puts on a, a dress, a party party dress. Which, we had fun rehearsing. Oh, the God. Day, <laughs> which, this costume change happens on stage. And and Wokle, Wokle has to dress me and... and, and Kate, what is her last name? I'm so sorry. Kate Lerner. Kate Lerner. She's in, was in the, is she yeah, still? she's, she's in her still last the, year in the, uh, in the she, She's a wonderful young artist, and she, but she is not a dresser. So, <laughs> you know, the poor thing is just like a deer in the headlights, you know. And, uh, just, but I, we'll sort that out, I'm sure. Um, Minnie's complicated because she handles a lot of stuff. You know, there's, there's so many props uh, Guns and decks of cards and whiskey bottles and cigars and Bibles and I mean it just oh. you name it. Can you see the similarity? Very... The similarity. I find now I'm thinking the similarity with the butterfly when she's changing for the wedding. And the kind of similarity that Puccini really wanted something. You know, I. I or to to. No, I don't. Well, I don't. I, I never. I never studied butterfly. No, she just wants to look at her most feminine for. Right, exactly, her. and and, no, I and said the same could... scene that he wants adjusted that butterfly and and Minnie change on stage uh, to yeah. be ready for for, for... yeah. Well, yeah. sometimes and she pulls a... out perfume and she pulls yeah. out gloves that she hasn't had on for forever and ever. Also, some 
Butterflies music there. That's too, true. Right? Yeah. 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 Well, it, it's, it's funny. Where does this come in relation to Butterfly? Uh, in Butterfly, when <laughs> she's was, changing. No, no. And in terms of when they were written. Uh, Butterfly was before, no? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before. Butterfly was six years before. before. It was. It was immediately before, right? Yeah. So it was the opera that preceded. Yeah. Uh, functionally. Well, because yeah. you know, it's funny. There's all this Belasco, sort of Japanese music that that it's like he hadn't got it out of his system. Number you one, know, you should say, voglio vestirmi yes. tutta, it's yeah. butterfly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it, uh, the question that inquiring minds want to have the answer to is, of course, when these two uh, walk off stage at the end of, of this opera, is their union going to last? Of course. Oh, you think? Absolutely, they'll live happily ever after, yes. <laughs> Truly? Do the, the two of you agree, yes? I, I, think, I think they, they will live forever. Oh, yeah. At least on the operatic stage. In the operatic <laughs> stage, yeah. Yes. We have exceeded our time. There, there's that line but, from the Mikado. Virtue is triumphant only in theatrical performances. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> um, our singers and conductor have had a rehearsal today, and so we need to let them go since we've exceeded our time already. I want to wish all of you in Boca Lupo and Toy Toy Toy, thank you very much, thank Deborah you. Voigt, Marcello yeah. Giordani, Sir thank Andy you. Davis. Thank you. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. <laughs>